0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Big Ben Strong is on the board. Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson.
0: All right, we've been talking about... Um Artificial intelligence. Uh, and, and initially, we just thought it could be used for helping kids write their essays. Now, um, well, it can do everything a human can do. Let's move on from there. Uh, and, and obviously, you can you can tell that that scares a lot of people. But, you know, do you use the technology for good or evil? Um, John Lennon's voice is back from the dead, thanks to artificial intelligence. Uh, there will be what Paul McCartney calls a final Beatles record with a song featuring uh, an artificial create artificially created from past stuff so then you know you're really not taking anything you're just using stuff that was already there let's bring in eric alper music publicist and commentator in here now eric thanks for the time hope you're well
2: I'm good. I'm good. You know, when it comes to artificial intelligence, is there anybody more wrapped up in this than myself? My wife has said I've I've had artificial intelligence for
0: years. (laughs) And you're using your power for good, not evil. Thank goodness, Eric. Yes,
2: exactly. Yeah, this is kind of neat. You know, look, uh, you know, you and I have talked in the in the past on this very radio program about the use of artificial intelligence when it comes to music, creating new melodies and new harmonies, even entire new musical arrangements and this is going to be interesting to see what the Beatles are able to come up with using little bits and pieces of John's voice on a really bad cassette and a piano that was basically taped from, uh, from the days of, uh, of Let It Be.
0: So this goes back to the the uh, the documentary Peter Jackson did in, in back in 2021 they found this. they tried to pull it through and such. So explain what is going on what they have done here.
2: Yeah, so um if anybody has seen the documentary, you know that it looked really, really clean and clear and the voices were um, Spoken and sung like it was literally filmed that week. And Peter Jackson, the director of the film, worked with Giles Martin. And Giles is the son of George Martin, the producer of the Beatles. And essentially what they were able to do was separate all the noises that were going on in any room to um to its sparse arrangement so that if John was talking to Paul and they were talking over one another ai can actually separate the voices and have them isolated and that's essentially why the 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 documentary looked and sounded so great is just because they were able to make things a lot more clearer Um, even if Ringo was in the back corner of a large room he sounded like he was right beside the microphone so that's the little magic and the little tricks that AI is able to do once it's kind of fed this information
0: I remember way back when when they discovered free as a bird and they released it and it charted and everything but at the end of the day it wasn't that good a song what about this time
2: Yeah, this is going to be, you know, kind of interesting to see what happens, because this was a song that Paul McCartney has confirmed that Paul and John were working together on a demo um, and that they were able to get John's voice and make it pure through AI and mix the record as you would just normally do as if he was in it. Um, There's, you know, there's the thinking of music fans of like, well, if it was so great, it would have been Released already, and then right. there are some fans that are like, "Oh, well, maybe this was, you know, the beginning stages of a song that John ended up writing, or Paul ended up writing, or maybe it was just really good and they just ran out of time to do it." um You know, and I think all of the opinions are going to be correct. But I agree with you. You know, the, the the "Free as a Bird" song was so hyped around the Beatles anthology book and the docu series that was broadcast on on network television in a week. Um, it was kind of underwhelming. Considering how great Paul McCartney's solo stuff was and how much revered John Lennon is and was. Um, so it's gonna be kind of fun just to see what, what they're able to do. I mean, they're not gonna create I mean that that this is the the one thing that I think fans need to kind of understand that they're not actually creating something from nothing. You know, Paul McCartney likes to say that it's kind of like if you have a cake and AI is able to separate the eggs and the yeast and the butter Mm. and all the things that make the cake. So you can rearrange it and put it in different styles without having to replay those pieces again. I think that's, what's going to happen here.
0: We only got a couple of seconds here, Eric. So all of a sudden are we going to hear a whole bunch of new music and albums from dead people?
2: Oh, absolutely. I think this is only the start of it. And it's not just on the audio form. We're going to be seeing live concerts from musicians that are long deceased with the use of AI technology and 3D technology. If they can do it for Star Wars, they can do it for Roy Orbison.
0: All right. Eric Alper with us, music publicist and commentary. More Beatles music. Uh, As always, Eric, thanks for the time. Be well.
2: Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. (laughs)
0: As you uh, may or may not know, news breaking today that uh, the RCMP has announced that they have uh, opened an official uh, investigation into alleged uh, election interference by the Chinese Communist Party and meddling in uh, the lives of three MPs. Uh, Apparently 100 plus investigations are underway, says the acting RCMP commissioner. And the police stations that we've been hearing so much about that are harassing Chinese Canadians are uh, being closed. So there you have it. Uh, That, as Aaron O'Toole, former Conservative leader and Ontario MP, used his last address to the House of Commons to issue a call to his colleagues to focus on what they should be doing uh, rather than trying to win elections, Uh, reflected on the divisiveness of the last federal election, how social media is shaping the country's politics, telling MPs social media did not build this great country, but it is starting to tear down its democracy. Uh, Too many of us, he said, are often chasing algorithms down a sinkhole of diversion and division Uh, we are becoming electric uh, elected officials who judge our self-worth not by uh, or uh, rather judge our self-worth by how many likes we get on social media not on how many lives we change in the real world let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University he's with
3: us now Henry thanks for the time hope you're well I am thank you
0: what are your thoughts on what uh, Aaron O'Toole had to say in his last speech in the house
3: I, I was very impressed by it, and I. But I've been always impressed by Aaron O'Toole. Uh, I, I think he probably didn't get the the fair shake that he should have gotten, or, you know, uh, some. Or I thought maybe he should have a second chance at it. But uh, this is in keeping with him. I think he's a person who's you know very intelligent, uh, has very good experiences uh beginning in fact with the fact that it, it, you know he his his father was very active uh, as an MPP conservative MPP in uh Ontario and I, I knew his father very well and uh you know he had a, his father I sure schooled him on how how to be a good parliamentarian and I think he has been so I'm I'm very positive about him
0: a uh, great message but would that resonate sounds nice but you know the road to victory is uh, is a little different when it comes to winning an elections uh, sounds good will it will it resonate
3: well i mean we were you know the parties and the leaders uh, are going to really go after each other but uh, the, you know we had traditionally people waited for the most part until you got close to an election in the meantime, you know, when things before you got the election, when you're two years out, three years out, you actually would try to get, you know, influence public policy in the way the government works, and in, in order to make it work better for people and or solve problems, and. Uh, that, so, but I think it you know lately, and you know there there is a temptation to be having a perpetual election that you know as soon as you finish the election, you're going to behave like you're in an election for the next four years, and I think mm. that just you know makes it very difficult for people to cooperate because you're always on guard that somebody's trying to get you or you're always acting to see who you can defeat, who you can make look bad. And then boast about it. So, yeah, I think they're I it's it's it, you're not going to remove, you know, these type of attacks, but they need to be corralled in at election time, not not necessarily through the whole year when people should be doing what is good for the population.
0: Obviously, uh, that speech resonated with a lot of people, a lot of people hoping, yeah, gee whiz, won't, wouldn't that be nice if that's the way it was? Uh, is this all the more need for a public investigation into uh, the election interference uh, simply because we need to have our trust reaffirmed for these institutions as he's speaking?
3: Well, I do, I do think there's, there is a case for a commission uh, with the right, people, right person or people Uh, heading it, uh, because they probably will be able to get it done in a year, which is lightning speed in terms of these type of things. But if you go into a public inquiry, uh... you're likely to it's likely to go on even past the election date because it there's a you know it's it becomes very very uh... you know tied up with rules of uh... evidence and uh... and uh... different lawyers representing different people and these things can just go on and on and on so if we look at many you know many of the public inquiries they they go on for three years or so that that's that's normal and, of course, that would bring us past the, the next election. So a commission maybe, but with the right person or persons to, to do it, um, you know, they might be able to do it within a year. And, and one interesting thing that Trudeau did today, I think, is he said there is a House committee that is actually looking at some of these things. Uh, in a concrete way. And he says that, that's, what a, no, that's what he wants a, a body to do, is to essentially, rather than attacking people about how trustworthy they are, let, let's look at the, at the situation we're supposed to be studying and let's dig and, and present the facts to the people and to the parliament.
0: Uh, You know, I I think that sounds really good, Henry, but this has gone way too far. There's way too much water under the bridge for all of this. And the whole issue of David Johnston playing the victim here, that it was partisan politics, it's not the opposition that shapes the country. It's the government. It's not the opposition who decides what to do. Uh, it's, It's the government. At the end of the day, if you don't have a public inquiry for trust in your democracy, what do you have one for? I'm just not buying into this is too long, or it'll be too expensive, or that it will reveal deep, dark secrets honestly. Why would you not want this no matter what party line or or, or what party you're from? Because it's talking about democracy and and fairness. It should not be partisan in any way, which to me says that something is being hidden here. And every time a public inquiry is shoved off to the side, even for the sake of doing one, so it shows up well in your numbers, just do it as Jagmeet Singh would say. Mm -hmm. So to me, the fact that uh, whether they're pushing it back for the cost or it'll take too long that's no reason not to have one
3: well i mean if you want to do it listen it wouldn't bother me personally if it went past the next election but i think a lot of people would expect you know and certainly uh, many of the parliamentarians are saying we need to get this cleared up by the next election i don't you know i don't think that is the important thing i mean i would agree with you we want to get to the facts we it's have a campaign. mess, Henry. It's an ab- it's an absolute mess. It's a, it's, a, it's a it's a. There's a lot of digging that needs to be done here. And and while you, the best thing you can, the only way to really do this, you know, in a in a, in my point of view, as a very good way, is you've got to go and and do dig into various ca- uh, campaigns. And collect the information. How was this campaign run? Uh, what was happening here? Were certain types of people being mobilized? Were certain types of people being threatened? That's that's the way you find out what's really been going on here. And uh, and that'll take some time. But that but but I think arguing over uh, you know. Uh, the, you got to get the trust thing away. I don't know how you're going to get the right. Well, know, you do that away. by
0: calling a public inquiry, Henry. Uh, Henry. Like, that's the whole deal. With, with a public inquiry, everybody is involved. Everybody's got a piece of it. This was just a liberal kangaroo court. And the reason I think opposition's calling for a public inquiry is that's the only way to do what you're asking.
3: Yeah, well, I think it it could. I agree. The, the the Trudeau and to a certain extent Johnson did not really realize, you know, how this looked to the opposition. They, you know, they thought this 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 was a high-minded way of doing the things of of doing this and but in fact they didn't recognize that this is not the type of uh, you know inquiry that that they really wanted that what people really want i think is they want to hear something where they want to hear the facts about these things the facts of of of, of these intimidations and how serious they are and, and and the examples and how we can stop that from happening and that and we got none of that really uh but when, uh, with the you know, in the previous uh, month or so, basically we've got something that is interesting, but not all interesting to the population, and that is about how to make sure that uh, national security people in the, in the government. Uh, basically, uh, uh, you know, the deal with uh, in, uh, intelligence briefings and things like this. And that—that that is not what I think the public was mainly interested in.
0: And, you know, if the RCMP is now investigating, how can the government not? Uh, Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science at McMaster University. Henry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well.
3: Okay, very good.
0: Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Pat Sajak is going to take one last spin at the Wheel of Fortune, announcing this week that uh, next season will be his last as host and announcing his retirement from the popular game show. Joining us now, Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. And here now, Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
1: I am, but I'd like to buy a vowel, Scott.
0: <laughs> Are you surprised at this? I mean, I understand that um, uh, Pat has one of the most uh, flexible schedule, uh, schedules in show business. I think he does all of the tapings like in one day, and then he's pretty much got his own time and uh, floating in cash, obviously. Are you surprised he's stepping back?
1: I am kind of surprised knowing really, how cushy that schedule is because, you know, when I mean, I can imagine that he must be wash in cash. But, I, you know, you never sort of think, think about how long this show has been on. Yeah. And he's been a part of the fabric of many people's lives, beamed into their living rooms for, what, for the past 30 years? So, I mean, not that I watch Wheel of Fortune all the time, but, you know, it's funny what happens, Scott. You get a bit older, then suddenly you have more tolerance for that program. I don't know if you, <laughs> you found that or not. <laughs> it's but like I'm a like,
0: crossword puzzle. Is that what I it mean, is? It keeps you know, the mind I stimulated. Know,
1: I love crosswords. I did a New York Times crossword. But still, I mean, I'll sit there and go to my husband and go, what is that? What is, I don't even know. How did she even get that? How did she get that with three letters? So, I mean, there, it, the, the game is so simple that it applies. You know, anybody can do it. It doesn't matter how smart you are or how not smart you are. It doesn't matter the walk of life you're from. Wheel of Fortune is apl- applicable or applies. Can uh, Anybody can like it or anybody can hate it, but still. And you would think that he would just sort of go on and on and on. But, of course, maybe people don't want to go on and on. And I think the big question is, who is going to take over, you Mm. know, that job? And I heard this morning, and somebody says, well, why not Vanna? I mean, Vanna can do a lot more than, than, you know, two letters. Yeah, she could certainly, you know, help out and uh, I think that she would do a great job at hosting. But you know, a lot of these game shows are sort of coming to an end of an era. Yeah, And, um, you know, there was the untimely death of Alex Trebek, which sort of mm-hmm. changed the complexion of, of Jeopardy. And now we're looking at Wheel of Fortune. So it will be interesting to see who they do put in that spot. Will it be somebody younger? Will it be somebody that still appeals to an older audience? Are they going to stick with an older white male? Maybe they'll go with an older female. I, I, I think that whoever they put in will certainly be a sign of the times and... And also recognize that the demographic that still watches them has not changed.
0: Hmm. I think it's a great idea why, uh, by getting Vanna to do it. I think on the last week of the show, Pat should be spinning the letters or touching the letters or whatever they do now. And she should be hosting. See what happens. See how that works out.
1: Well, nobody knows the game better than she does. Yeah. And, I mean, why not? I think that it would be a bit of a natural progression. It wouldn't be too much of a disruption in terms of the viewer's enjoyment for those people. There were many For many people... Wheel of Fortune is must-see TV. And, Mm -hmm. you know, people laugh at that and they think, oh, you know, is one's life not full enough that they have to depend on Wheel of Fortune? (laughs) Well, you'd be surprised! (laughs) You know, the older you get, the earlier that, you know, you go to bed, that you're in your house, and there are certain things in terms of continuity that give people comfort. It's like knowing that Jeopardy is always on at a certain time. It's knowing that Wheel of Fortune is always on at 7pm. And a lot of people find great comfort in that, especially an older demographic, who may not be getting out as much. So of fortune, I think, plays a big part in people's lives, not just as a game show, but for the continuity that it's always going to be there when they want it.
0: Uh, you talked about uh, the end of an era for a game show. Jeopardy! and this one have been on for an awfully long time. Uh, Pat and Vanna, both stars. Does it matter when you change the host? Is is it time to move on? Are these, are these game shows, these typical uh, uh, traditional game shows still as successful as they once were, you know, in the reality uh, world or The Bachelors or all those other things
1: that are going on? Well, I'll tell you something, Scott. You only have to look at the Food Network to know that game shows are still a thing. Hmm. You know, every show on the, the Food Network used to be, I mean, it's back in the day, it was more like, let's make this recipe. Now there has to be some sort of contestants and some sort yeah. of game. Yeah. And the latest show that I found, the Food Network, and I kid you not, uh, is called stab that cake okay stab (laughs) and i guess that if the cake is so real that it you know if you can stab it it's a cake and if you can't then obviously it's not made of you know cake and i thought where are we in life that we can now actually look at a show and make me pause to see if you can indeed stab that cake so if i take that analogy and move it over to game shows they're still alive and well. People still want to see other people win. People want to be able to participate. They want to be able to yell at the TV. It's the common denominator for everything. You don't necessarily need to know all the rules because they explain all the rules every five minutes. So, Scott, in my estimation, <laughs> game shows are going nowhere.
0: Escapism. There you go. Alyssa Freeman with his PR and pop culture expert, Pat Sajak. One last spin. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott.
1: And I still want my vowel. All right, there you go. Uh, someone get her a vowel. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXM.
0: Obviously, McMaster University, a massive part of this community and uh, a lot involved in this radio station as well. And we are shining a light on some of McMaster University's recent achievements. We are joined by Christina Stratford, uh, the U Sports Therese Wigley Award winner for student-athlete community service in Vancouver at the 2023 U Sports All-Canadian Awards Reception to discuss the Community Service Award and her community involvement. Uh, Christina Stratford is with us now. Women's volleyball player, U Sports. McMaster University on the Marauders U Sports National Community Service Award winner and with us now Christina thanks for the time hope you're well
4: thanks for having me Scott so happy to be here (laughs)
0: Congratulations to you. You know, I've always wondered, uh, people that are uh, great students and phenomenal athletes at university, how do you balance the two? It's hard enough going to school. How do you balance, uh, y- you know, being on a woman's volleyball team or, or whatever the sport is in university and keeping up the studies and everything uh, of the demands that, that are needed academically?
4: Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's definitely uh, a balancing act a lot of the time. Um, But here at Mac, I've been lucky to have a lot of support in and around my community. And the biggest thing I would say is time management. I was lucky enough that when I was younger, I played a lot of uh, different competitive sports. So I didn't really have a lot of time. So I learned those skills pretty young. Um, So I would say that's helped me a lot during my time management um, pieces here. And then also just as a student, just finding time to take time for yourself. Cause I think that's a big thing that gets overlooked regardless of whether you're an athlete or not. Hmm. Um, so adding that in for me, um, in the mornings taking 30 minutes to myself or whenever I kind of have a break in my day, um, has helped me a lot. And that way I don't feel as overwhelmed when I look at what I have to do for school, what I have to do on the court and everything else.
0: So do you just really prioritize everything? I do this at this point, I do this at that point and it all fits together like a
5: puzzle.
4: Yeah, I would say that. I sometimes like to make checklists too. So that way I can see it visually get off um, get off my list. But definitely yeah, every day I kind of have the, the things that I got to get done and what's my number one priority and what are some of the things that maybe I can kind of put off if I need to until the next day.
0: Uh, School, sport, one thing, now balancing community service. Obviously, this award about giving back. How do you find time for that and fit it all in?
4: Um, Coming in as a student athlete, I knew for me, um, giving back to the community was something that I really wanted to do from day one, kind of when I stepped in to becoming a Marauder. So it's always something that for me, I've never really felt I've had to find time for. I've always just fitted in. Um, to the puzzle that we referenced that you just referenced before for me, because it's always such a rewarding thing to do. Um, So I've always added it into that schedule because I think it's uh, a major part that as student athletes, we have the opportunity to give back to the community and it's super important that we do that.
0: And it is really part of the Marauder mindset, isn't it?
4: Yeah. It's been incredible to come into this community as a Marauder and already have so many different groups and athletes in and around the community that already have those ties to organizations that they've worked with and it's definitely been a pleasure of mine to get to work with many different organizations that a lot of other student-athletes and uh, coaches and people at MAC have introduced me to.
0: Uh, In evidence of that, McMaster student-athletes won the OUA's Community Service Award in five different sports, virtually unheard of.
4: Yeah, it's it's truly incredible. Um, I've got, I've had the pleasure to work with um, multiple of them. And I was also one of the co-presidents with the Ari who won the basketball uh, community service award in the OUA. But it's truly incredible to be recognized for five. And I think it just goes to show um, how big of an emphasis, you know, Mac has been putting on giving back to our community and how as a school, that's something that we hold uh, very proud of.
0: We all know that volunteerism and, and doing what you're doing is something that we all should do. But what do you personally gain out of this? And I'm sort of coming at this you know, through the back door in the sense that you know, when, when you volunteer, when you be a part of something, it, it not only helps and makes you feel good, but you benefit from this as well. Tell everybody what you get out of this.
4: Yeah, I think for me, honestly, I've gotten to grow a lot um, as a person and as an athlete. I think you get to meet a lot of uh, different unique people. And even though sometimes you go in as a mentorship role, a lot of times I found that kids that maybe I'm supposed to be mentoring have actually taught me um, many life lessons as well. So I think that's the cool part about it is that it's, it's a dual relationship and both people can get things out of it, even though it may seem like you shouldn't or you can't. Um, so I think for me, that's the biggest thing that I find is that I've been able to grow a lot as a person um, through all the different relationships that I've been able to create.
0: Do you remember when you went from being mentored to being a mentor? Uh,
4: I think there's been multiple times in my life for sure that that I have. Um, one that I can think of specifically is with me as a coach. I've gotten the opportunity to work with with many different coaches and I've always been like menteed and mentored. And most recently, especially this year, I kind of had to become that mentor. I took over a head coaching position. So that was a big change for me and something that I think was super cool opportunity to see and to look back on now and be able to see how having been mentored by another individual and how it now transfers into me and how I mentor other people, I think is a super cool thing to be able to reflect back on.
0: How does that help you as a player on the court?
4: Uh, as a player, I think having role models and having those mentors is, is huge. Um, and even just skills that I learned like problem solving and adaptability, I think in the, in sport, um, although it's not something that maybe is at the forefront of the game and it's not necessarily a skill that you teach or you learn in practices. I think it's helped me as a player immensely to deal with different pressures and I've been lucky enough to have one of my mentors actually on the coaching staff um, at Mac. So to have that person be around me, um, 24-7 has definitely helped a lot as well.
0: Christina Stratford, uh, McMaster Volleyball, U Sports National Community Service Award winner. Christina, thank you so much. Congratulations. Good luck moving forward. Thank you. Lots of stories in regard to uh, the ongoing foreign interference uh, and uh, the calls for a public inquiry the whole day. Johnston resignation and such and now new information that's coming out today um or at least to the public uh the rcmp is investigating the chinese communist party election interference allegedly uh in three mps that it affected uh, two conservative one uh ndp so to talk more about all of this lisa wright is with us former deputy leader of the conservative party of canada and here now lisa thank you for your time hope you're well
6: i'm very well thank you having me today
0: So, Lisa, we're hearing uh, today that the RCMP are, in fact, investigating these alleged uh, election interference allegations uh, uh, involving the Chinese Communist Party and these MPs. Uh, Is this in somehow, or was David Johnston's resignation somehow uh, involved in any of this? Because it would seem to me, how does the RCMP open an investigation into this? Well, David Johnston says, no, there's no need for a public inquiry. It seems that it would be, it's contradictory here are the two related in any way?
6: I think everything's related. It's got to be honest. And and the way that you present it is just, I think, the perfect reason why we need to have a proper public inquiry into what's going on. And and I'll explain why. Um you mentioned about how the RCMP has some files open that they're investigating with respect to interference, with respect to threats against sitting members of parliament. And I think those things do have to be investigated and they're very important, but they're not the same thing. On one hand, there's questions about whether or not there is tampering in the election and that there was undue influence. And we saw all those newspaper articles starting back Way in February. But there's a new complexion on this. This is about whether or not fake Chinese uh, uh, government um, police stations are being set up in our country. This is about whether or not members of parliament are are being pressured to not do the work that they're doing vis-a-vis representing the views of of their constituents on um alleged human rights atrocities in china and those things certainly are worthy of of an inquiry of some kind because i believe the canadian public should understand the full scope of exactly what's going on here and unfortunately There's so much noise and so much fog around everything. It's hard to keep track of what's going on. And and that kind of confusion favors the government.
0: Uh, and and the government now saying, well, a, a public inquiry was always on the table, and it seems that they're more open to the idea, but they haven't called one. Instead, they're sort of uh, volleying the ball back to the opposition and asking them for names and them for credentials and, and them for a sort of template. Um, so whose responsibility is this? Where are we now with this?
6: There is only one entity that can actually call a public inquiry, and that is the cabinet, the governor and council. That's who can do it by law. It's interesting that they want to ask the opinion of the opposition, but it's just an opinion of the opposition as to what they they want to do. And what the government is doing now is that they're now trying to deflect what the issue really is. So it's no longer about the fact that three members of parliament were were pressured by the People's Republic of China or attempted to be pressured by the People's Republic of China. And now it's about whether or not Pierre Polyev is giving names to the government for a public inquiry. And and Pierre Polyev is the reason why there's no public inquiry. That's not true. There's one reason why there's no public inquiry, and that's because the prime minister doesn't want to have one. And I always I always had this uh, joke with my colleagues when when I was sitting in opposition, you knew the government was in trouble on an issue when they would send out their best communicator, Dominic LeBlanc, to come to the microphone and explain what was going on. So to see him out there on Saturday morning had me nodding and saying, "Okay, they they now realize they're in trouble and they have to start now putting putting things right. And for Dominic to say that they've never been against a public inquiry. I mean, there's a lot of clips of the prime minister saying exactly Mm. that that's going to that can be contrasted to what uh, to what dominic said
0: and it seemed that the the liberals were playing um david johnston as the victim and that this was all about uh political partisanship and 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 just mean-spirited politics and such as opposed to a perception of bias I, I, am i accurate in saying it, it's appeared that they're trying to spin this as david johnston's a victim here
6: well, they are. And and the sad truth is, I mean, David Johnson is a victim, but he's not a victim of mm. the opposition. He's a victim of of the prime minister putting Mr. Johnson in a position that he should have known was going to yeah. cause problems. I mean, from sitting on the Trudeau Foundation to the claim that they had uh, dinner frequently prior to the prime minister becoming the prime minister, you know, act. Even when he appointed David Johnston to the position, he kept referring to him with his given name. He kept calling him David. David's a good man. David can do these things. Just trying to even show that there's a closeness between him and the rapporteur that was supposed to be independent. So I think it's okay for people to feel sorry about what happened with david johnson and that he had to resign at the end of the day but i think if you're trying to blame the opposition for it i think you're looking in the wrong place i think the person who has a lot to blame on this one is the prime minister who put david johnson in this position
0: and you know they forget they see it seem they seem to forget that it's the prime minister that sets the tone for the country not the opposition they just react to it um i'm having a hard time understanding too lisa why Any party wouldn't want to get to the bottom of this unless you're benefiting from it in some way. It seems that this is less about Chinese Communist Party interference in our election. And for me, it's what are you hiding? Why would you not want this? Even just to shut shut everybody up. up.
6: It's not. Look, we can all fall into this trap that. It's about whether or not an election was won or lost because of Chinese influence. That was an interesting spin from the beginning of these reports coming out, that there was an attempt to move the electoral vote. Um, Clearly, it didn't happen, maybe in a few cases, but not to the extent that the Conservatives lost an election over that. I, I don't think we should be entertaining that as a possibility but what has happened since is we now understand the lengths to which the people's republic of china will go to interfere even with duly elected representatives i mean members of parliament as as part of our democracy should be completely completely safe and they should be completely um unattainable when it comes to these kinds of these kinds of things so that is an important piece to remember uh, and the second part you know about who stands to benefit from all of this confusion around what is really going on or what are we trying to study here? Uh, Tom Mulcair, who was the leader of the opposition when I was in government, has uh, written and commented extensively that, and. and and Bob Fife has said the same thing in the Globe and Mail, that their point of view is that it's the Liberal Party that stands the most to gain from from the machinations of China in the electoral system or going after the opposition members of parliament. They're not going after government members of parliament, only opposition, Jenny Kwan, Erin O'Toole and Michael Chong. And that's uh, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think uh, I think Tom um, is on to something.
0: Uh, and again, can you know there's obviously two aspects to this, stopping the interference. And then is it also not what the Prime Minister knew, and when will we get to the bottom of that?
6: So yes. And there's another piece that really has to be taken a look at. So number one, um why why is the people of Re- People's Republic of China monkeying around with our elections? Number two, why are they going after our members of parliament? But number three, when this information comes to the attention of the government, where is it going? And why is there no action on it? And that's what Michael John, yeah. Chong said. He said, you know, this has been a complete breakdown in the machinery of government. And, and that in and of itself deserves to have a public inquiry as well. Because if the RCMP, to go back to the beginning comments that we had, if the RCMP said, say today, we were unaware of the threats against members of parliament until we read about it in the newspaper. And uh. yet the government of Canada was aware of it. What's going on?
0: Lisa Wright with us, former Member of Parliament, Minister and Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Lisa, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well.
6: Thank you. Great pleasure.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, on Friday, uh, late Friday, we told you just as we're signing off at 6 o'clock that uh, David Johnson had stepped down as the special rapporteur uh, in the uh, investigation around alleged foreign interference in elections. Uh, Something that, of course, obviously Parliament and the majority of Canadians have been asking for. Now we find out on this Tuesday uh, that uh, RCMP in this is through the committees that have been going on. The RCMP says investigations are underway into alleged foreign interference involving three members of Parliament, including the Conservatives uh, Michael Chong and Aaron O'Toole, and the uh, New Democrat uh, Jenny Kwan. Acting RCMP Commissioner confirmed the investigations uh, during a Parliamentary Committee meeting this morning. Uh, Over 100-plus investigations going on, Uh, and these uh, started pretty much when the information was leaked to the media, what was going on. Let's bring in Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, and with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
7: I'm well, Scott. Thanks for bringing me on. So, your thoughts
0: on where we are now, and, you know, I'm thinking that, uh, you know, how could David Johnston have possibly stayed on uh, when hearing the news and saying that there wasn't a need for a public inquiry when, in fact, the RCMP are now investigating this? Do you think the investigation uh, would have had any influence on David Johnston's decision?
7: How many twists and turns is the story going to take, Scott? I mean, you and I have I know. talked about this for a few weeks now. Um Look, it, it seems to be that the RCMP is obviously determined, um, for reasons that are unknown to you and me, that there are grounds to launch an investigation to see exactly what happened back in 2019, 2021. Uh, interestingly for me, will be sort of the nature of the investigation and who are they going to investigate? Is it going to be diplomats? That's a very different investigation than investigating Canadians. So, and there's no question that this matter's been around for a long time, and the decision by the RCMP certainly puts the Johnson report in a very different light. Because, of course, the report kind of you know summarized that there's nothing to see here, folks; everything's okay. Well, clearly, nothing's okay, and we'll just have to see what the RCMP uncovers in the course of their investigations.
0: Uh, any lo- Any idea how what this process will take? How long it will take? Uh, obviously, they said there's a hundred plus going on investigations.
7: Wow, I mean, you know, it's not like the RCMP is, you know, sitting twirling against thumbs on other, other other issues, right? Other investigations. Where they going to get the uh, resources from, the human resources to do the investigations? It's it, it's quite big, and I, I think it points to. I mean, I saw allegations in the press, Scott, that you know, seats had told the RCMP about this as early as 2019. Why did it take you know four years to get to this point? It just begs mm-hmm. the question as to what's happening with the use of intelligence um, within our government, including within the RCMP. So it's not going to end tomorrow, Scott. It's going to take quite some time. And then the the next question is, do do Canadians have the patience to wait for the results to see the investigation carried out um, accurately and uh, significantly?
0: It seems that this needs to be done, uh, if for any reason, uh, just so we can clear up the trail of information from point A to point B. Do you think this process will help the information get to where it needs to be any more efficiently? Do you think we'll get that out of this?
7: Oh, God, I hope so, Scott. Uh, you know, this has been going back and forth. And as I've said on a number of occasions to you and others, the intelligence was there. It was shared with the clients that needed to you it. Know, I read a report today that something really serious was sent up the line and someone decided, no, oh, the Prime Minister this this. So it's not that the intelligence wasn't there and wasn't accurate, but people didn't act upon it and didn't see it, didn't think it was worth passing on. So are we going to solve the, the, the problem of intelligence collection in Canada? Well, collection is good. It's the distribution and sharing that's the problem. And alas, this is a problem that's been going on for a very, very long time. And I wish I could say I was more confident this would resolve it, but I'm not, I'm not that optimistic.
0: Also, the uh, interim commissioner said that uh, the police stations that uh, many reported that were interfering or harassing Chinese Canadians had been closed. Are you confident that they've hit every one of these, or do you think this is a process?
7: I think it's more the latter. Uh, I'm hoping that we had good intelligence on where the stations were, who were manning them, and exactly what they were doing. But the Chinese have been do- getting away with this for a very long time, and not just in Canada, Scott, including the United States and other countries. Let's hope they've got them all. Well, let's not be naive here. The Chinese will find another way to harass Canadians of, of Chinese in the diaspora, Uyghurs, Tibetans, Falun Gong, et cetera, et cetera. they're not going to stop doing this. So it's it's good that we close the stations, hope we got them all, but there's a good chance that they'll find another way to to, to, to uh, keep the harassment of Canadians going, which means we have to be vigilant going forward.
0: RCMP qualified for this level of investigation because, you know, 100-plus, I mean, this could be getting pretty deep into political parties.
7: It could, and it'd be interesting to see exactly how deep it goes. And more importantly, as I said at the outset, there, there's, there's two kind of focuses here. One is on Chinese diplomats. Now, they, they can't be charged, right? All they can do is expel them, declare them, persona on grata, and expel them. But if Canadians are involved, now you're talking the possibility of criminal charges. Now, I don't know the Elections Act very well. I'm not sure exactly what they can charge them with, but it will be interesting to see exactly who, when they cast their net wide who they kept in that net and, and who, what are the identities and nationalities of those people that they find.
0: This is more political, uh, Phil, but it seems that the the government is now pushing this on the opposition. What do you want to see? What do you want to ask for? What's the template? How do we do this? Uh, we need suggestions for names. And the minister suggesting that this will be a different type of public inquiry if, in fact, there is one. Are there different types, different levels of public inquiry? Can we get to the questions? We've asked this before without revealing deep, dark secrets.
7: I have no idea. Public inquiries are a, like a, a sport here in Canada. We have three a week, I think. Um, we can do them. We've done them. in the past, where intelligence has been either sanitized or there's a, you know, a, a separate report that's, that's, that is written in a classified format for those with clearance. Uh, look, at the intel already been leaked, Scott. We know a lot of the details already. There's much more intel, I'm sure. But we can do this in a way that Canadians are informed and that the best decisions are made if we go the inquiry route, whether it's public or private. I frankly don't care. And I hope we get the answers that we need.
0: Phil Gursky with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, uh, RCMP investigating investigations underway into the foreign interference, alleged foreign interference involving three members of parliament. Phil, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve
1: into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900
0: CHML. In case you uh, weren't following it at all today, it was it's like watching the OJ slow motion chase again. Uh, the um, former president uh, leaving his uh, establishment in his compound in Florida and then arriving uh, at the Miami Courthouse, former U.S president donald trump arriving at the courthouse today to face criminal charges that he kept national secrets uh, security documents when he left the office uh left office and lied to officials who sought to recover them to get an update on what happened today reggie giacchini with us washington correspondent for global news he is with us now reggie thanks for the time hope you're well
5: Good afternoon.
0: So give us an update here. What happened? We certainly saw it on TV, uh, whisked in, whisked out. uh, Not uh, any cameras in the courtroom or that per se. But what happened? Break down what what, what would have happened today.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And it's what we didn't see on camera that ultimately carries the most weight here, Scott. Uh, You know, after that, motorcade made its way from Doral. Uh, His other golf course here in Florida, about 20 kilometers away, Uh, as you mentioned, he was whisked in, brought up to the 13th floor uh, of this uh, almost new court complex here. Uh, And at the moment that he walked inside, he was placed under arrest uh, and uh, and he was processed. He had his digital fingerprints taken were unclear uh, if there was a mugshot uh, that was taken. If there was, it's not going to be circulated uh, amongst uh, the the public. Uh, And beyond that, he was then arraigned on the 37 charges. We understand Uh, from the court reporters that are inside and from the court sketch artist that's actually sitting right next to me so I could see a little bit what was going on. Uh, Donald Trump, what was wearing? Uh, A blue suit. He sat quietly. He sat with his hands folded. He did not speak. His lawyer spoke for him, pleading not guilty on his part. Uh, And within a few moments of that, he was released on his own recognizance. There was no cash bond put forward. He did not have any uh, uh, conditions on his release with the exception of not speaking uh, to any potential witnesses in this case. So this was a whirlwind moment. It was an unprecedented moment, but at the end of the day, it was simply just a blip uh, in the 24 hours that it was.
0: So what's next? He has been charged, fingerprinted, all that other stuff. So what what happens now?
5: Well, look, there are two different ways that we can go with this. What happens next is we will wait for uh, court, uh, next court appearance, and this court has a reputation for moving at a very quick pace. So the earliest that could happen would be towards the end of August, far earlier than what we'll see with the first court appearance in his uh, Manhattan indictment. The other way we can move is what happened next. Well, Donald Trump boarded his plane and he's headed back to New Jersey. He is holding a fundraiser tonight at his Bedminster golf club, uh, doing what Donald Trump does best. And that is uh, speaking to a crowd and attempting to uh, monetize off of what everyone else would see as potential political and legal peril he is playing a victim card here. He is speaking directly to the people that he is hoping that will bring him back into office. And he is going to use tonight to bankroll.
0: So yeah, these are all great, uh, great fundraisers for him uh, in this perpetual court case. that never seems to end. Um, Was there any chatter between the judge and, um, and and his, uh, his lawyers about what he could say, what he couldn't say, as you mentioned, he's going to a fundraiser tonight. Can he
5: just say whatever he wants? Well, I mean, look, uh, he he was advised at his previous trial uh, to not speak uh, or potential uh, have a risk here for a gag order. Uh, It's likely that that potentially could have been uh, said to him today. You know, be careful of what you say. We do know that he can't talk to any potential witnesses in the upcoming case. And that's important here, Scott, because there are a number of witnesses that spoke that are incredibly close to and hovered uh, directly around the president, uh, former president in his orbit, including his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, but also. His, uh, his own lawyer, Evan Corcoran, was a key witness in this case who ultimately had to turn over um, contemporaneous notes that were taken uh, because the, there was a crime fraud exception made and special counsel felt that a crime was being committed via the attorney. So we have to find out now whether this means that Donald Trump can actually speak to his attorney, given the fact that he was a witness in this case. Uh, and
0: what about the judge? We understand there was a conflict of interest in uh, there in some way. D- does that matter moving forward?
5: Well, we'll have to wait for that. Uh, there was a separate judge that was uh, handed the proceedings just for today. And then Judge Eileen Cannon will take over once this trial starts. And you're right, there are concerns here for a conflict of interest. Number one, she is a Trump appointee. And number two, she was in charge of this case uh, at the very early stages and made some favorable rulings in Donald Trump's favor and in his team's favor, which were ultimately overturned uh, by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeal, saying that she went out of her lane. The Department of Justice could, if they tried, if they wanted to, ask for a recusal. It's unclear uh, if they would have any legs to stand on here, because at the end of the day, this was not a a chosen judge. It is simply kind of a random pick uh, when these kind of cases come up, and she just happened to be the name that was drawn.
0: And what about protests uh, outside the courthouse and such, Uh, how much of that actually happened?
5: Well, I mean, look, this is a very different city than Washington, D.C. This is a very different city than New York. There was no real kind of clash here uh, between the counter protesters and those who are here supporting uh, the former president. Florida is a very Trumpy. Uh, it, it's far Trumpier than anywhere else in the country. So his supporters were out in droves on all sides uh, of the courthouse here. Uh, and there were no kind of skirmishes there were no conflicts that were that were arising simply because uh, the numbers uh, of supporters here would have far outweighed any counter-protester, but they were all uh, parroting and echoing the same Donald Trump has been just for the last several weeks, but for the last several years here, in that they believe he is a victim of political persecution. They believe that Joe Biden is targeting Donald Trump because he is a political rival. And a couple of protesters, a couple of rather supporters, told me today that they don't believe that either a Donald Trump had any documents, despite the evidence, uh, but that he was also allowed to have the documents because they were declassified and he was the president, ignoring the fact that they weren't declassified and he wasn't the president, but they still believe what he says. What
0: is it like for you to be down there and talk with various people and just experience this? What What has it been like <laughs> for you today?
5: I mean, look, uh, you know, in any other time, uh, you know, in history, this would have been A first for a reporter to be dealing with uh, with a former president facing charges uh, well indicted. This is now the second time that I have had to deal with uh, an Mm -hmm. indictment of former President Donald Trump and that I have had to be in and around uh, the people who support him and believe what oftentimes are are false claims. But they are simply latching on to the words that are spoken by Trump. They really do take them. Uh, as gospel, and there is no kind of arguing them down or trying to get them to see something different. This, This is a group of people who are staunchly standing behind Donald Trump, who remain steadfast in that support, and it shows in his polling. I mean, I have talked to Trump supporters now for eight years, and from day one, they have said the exact same thing, that this is a nation in decline, parroting Donald Trump, and that he's the only person that can fix it, ignoring the fact that, you know, all these years after he left office, you know, did he actually do anything to, quote unquote, fix the country?
0: Uh, it, are there common denominators with the supporters? I mean, are they all the same? Well, I guess they're the same in the sense that he can't do any wrong. But but is there a common link here?
5: I mean, look, these are all supporters who feel disenfranchised. They feel uh, that, yeah. that current government, that the Democrats, that former Republicans didn't speak for them, that they were speaking for their own needs or for the needs uh, of the, quote unquote, elite in and around the country and they see donald trump as somebody who's able to break through ignoring the fact that donald trump is a billionaire he he kind of wines and dines with the billionaires of the world but he speaks to them in a way uh that they feel comfortable with i mean if you just circle back all the years to when rob ford ran for mayor in toronto uh it was of the same kind of caliber it was speaking to people who felt that they were being ignored by uh city leaders donald trump does that saying that they've They feel that they're being ignored by federal leaders and and they look to him as somebody who will change things. And look, he's shaken up the political kind of spectrum for the last eight ish years. He will continue to do that and he will continue um, to have these supporters underneath him because, look, two indictments later, they seem to not be going anywhere. Reggie Giacchini
0: with us, Washington correspondent for Global News, covering uh, Donald Trump in Miami. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Scott Radley is with us coming up uh, after the 6 o'clock news, the Scott Radley Show. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. How are you doing? I'm doing good. So uh, your thoughts on uh, Michael Andlauer now looking like the new owner of the Ottawa Senators. I don't know why I feel like I've lost something. This has nothing to do with Hamilton. It's got nothing to do with us or any. But I
8: still feel like we've lost something somehow. Why am I feeling that way, Scott? Well, uh, we'll see. We'll see whether we lose something and I, you know, it's a realistic thing to, to say, I think, Scott, because up until now, uh, the Hamilton Bulldogs have been the sole point of, of attention for him and the things that go with that, whether it's spending money on outdoor games or the Bulldogs foundation feeding kids or whatever, you know, That when you drop a billion dollars on a team, compared to the 10 million that he paid for the Bulldogs, uh, your priorities are going to be changing a bit. And your interests are possibly going to be changing a bit. And the fact that the Bulldogs aren't even in Hamilton right now for the next few years, it's... It does feel a little bit like, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at something that we don't really know what we're looking at right now as far as Hamilton goes. I, I just, you know, like we tried to get the mayor of Brantford on, but he was busy tied
0: up in council meetings and such. Um, but yet you, you can't help but think they're very excited about this because it's more hype for this team. And, you know, how would we feel in Hamilton if none of this was happening and the Bulldogs were still here and such? And then Michael and Lauer had purchased the senators. I think it would give you a little bit of, of, of spring bringing your step, but uh,
8: I'm I'm cautious now. I don't know what's going to happen. Well, um, w- one of the things that I've wondered about, and, and I, I base this, Scott, on absolutely nothing, uh, just on thinking this thing through, is I, I had, you know, when, when the Hamilton Bulldogs left to go to Brantford, there were some people who said, oh, well, they're not coming back. And there's other people, including Michael Andlauer, who said, no, no, they're coming back. They're, don't worry about it. They're coming back. And I've often wondered whether him getting the senators would impact that. And I'll tell you why this city has not necessarily always been easy for him to deal with which i think is an understatement yes did we give him the attention he deserves and and not just the attention but the you know council was difficult with him at times and getting other stuff done was difficult and, and i have wondered okay so if he gets the senators which it now appears that he has And you've got a team in Brantford that is selling out every game, smaller arena to be sure, but nonetheless selling out every game, and the city can't do enough to help him and is running tickety boo. And you've got yourself tied up with interests in the senators now and stuff to do there. Like, is it a lot easier just to keep it in the city where it's no effort, like Brantford, as opposed to the city here where he always seems to be struggling to get ahead with council and with other things? And so I, I don't know the answer, Scott, but. We're we're going to see because clearly when you own an NHL team, there's a whole lot more going on than when you own an OHL team. You've got a lot more stuff to do. And, you know, if Brantford makes it so easy for him, and if they actually follow through with what they talked about in building a brand new OHL size arena, yeah. um we we'll we'll see. I'm not saying he's gone, but I'm saying it certainly I would think makes it M- more tempting to be gone. How
0: do you think Hamiltonians are feeling about this information today? How do you do?
8: do they care? Do they? Oh, yeah, well, that's good for him, but they're coming back. I mean, d- d- is there is there some apprehension here? Well, I heard a few people today say, "Oh, you know what? He's going to bring the senators to Hamilton," and it's like, okay, let's drop yeah. let's drop that <laughs> thought right now. That's yeah. not that's not <laughs> happening. Uh, be great if it was, but that's not happening. Um, do people care? I think hockey fans. I I would hope, and I wrote this. Uh, there's a piece on thespec.com already right now. I would hope that one thing, if nothing else, Scott. I would hope that people feel good for the guy. I know, you know, he's a billionaire, and some mm-hmm. people go, "Oh, he's a billionaire. Who cares? He's a billionaire spending his money." Yeah, he's a billionaire spending his money. But if people knew his backstory, this is a guy who grew up to a si- with a single mother in Montreal, who yeah. lived in poverty. Who th- their their breakfast was watered down powdered milk and cocoa and and like puffs, and and they would make a pot of soup and live on it for a week. Um, like this is a guy who had nothing and built himself into something, and has done great things for our community. So I mean, mm-hmm. yes, I know it's a billionaire, and I know we can't. Understand that lifestyle and all the rest, but this is one of those examples where I would think, at, at the very least, I think we should be happy for the guy because it's not someone who just got handed money from his oil baron great grandfather and decided to buy a toy. He's he's made this for himself.
0: So, do you think this has any impact on the Bulldogs returning back to Hamilton at all?
8: Well, again, m- maybe we'll. we'll it, I think it. There's a chance, but we the thing we don't know at this point is how Brantford is going to deal with this team and how, how they're going to do. And, I mean, the, the very first thing is Brantford has to basically sell out every game and be fantastic as a crowd and be fantastic as everything else. Then you start to have the discussion about, oh, do I want to leave there? I mean, if Brantford, if Brantford does really well for the first half season and then it peters out and, you know, whatever, then yeah. I, I don't even think we're talking about this near the end of the year. But if they are a fantastic home base, that's when you start to say, all right, well, where is this going to go then? And I don't know that we're going to know for two or three years. All right. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. The Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator.
0: As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great show. See you, Scott.
1: Thanks for listening
0: to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. 557, that's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpayer and customer, to have the last word. This one via email from Mr. Lowe. Now that Michael Andlauer is poised to purchase the Ottawa Senators, we need him to get the first Ontario Reconstruction on track and rolling. Now, not after the Grey Cup. Nighty-night. Keep right except to pass.